Good morning, Disciples Church. The scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe. For the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be be to God. Thank you, Cole. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. Thanks for moving this, whoever did that. Appreciate it. It is so good to see you, good to be with you. We are glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. And so if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So Jessica and I have been married for going on 15 years. It'll be 15 years this December. And I remember when we uh, first began to date and ultimately got married, it became obvious to me that there were a host of things with which I had grown up that were entirely normal to me that apparently were totally unique to my family. And many of you, I'm sure, have had this experience. Like, whatever you grow up with is your normal experience. You have no other perspective through which to view your life or your experiences or your presumptions about things because it's all you've ever known. And I remember one of the ways in particular that this began to show itself in our marriage early on is the way that we kind of viewed our home. And I kind of like to term this, are you a closed home or an open home? And here's what I mean. Growing up for me, we were a relatively closed home. Now, that didn't mean we weren't hospitable. We had people over, and we shared meals, and we hosted, and all of those kinds of things. But generally, it was done by invitation. You would receive an invitation, not necessarily a formal one in the mail, but you'd receive an invitation, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? And then people would come over for dinner, like, you know, normal people, right? <laughs> but my, wife's, my wife comes from a home that's an open home. And what I mean by that is there is a standing invitation for anyone. And when I say anyone, I mean almost anyone, to just walk in their house and make themselves at home. And so I remember in particular one time being down at my now in-laws, Jessica and I were dating at the time, I was sitting on the couch watching something on TV, and all of a sudden this dude, who I did not know and had no context for, walks into the house. Now I'm in their home alone, and I don't know who this guy is, and not only does he just walk in the door without knocking, but he doesn't so much as stop and say hello to me. He walks right past me to the kitchen, and I can hear the refrigerator door open. And at this time, I'm going, what, what kind of people are these that live this way? So I walked in there, and I asked him who he was. And it turns out he was some friend of the family, but I remember it being such a foreign experience. I just had no way to understand what was going on in that moment because it was entirely different than my own experience. So your identity, your family, shapes everything about you. 
It forms your outlook. It informs your presumptions. It affects the way that you interact with other people. The way that you view the world. The way that you practice life is shaped by your family and your identity. And that really is the heart of what Peter is getting at in this book. Is saying when you begin to understand your new identity in the gospel, the identity that Jesus Christ has given when you, given you, when you begin to understand who you are in Him, everything about you gets reshaped. We talked in the first couple of weeks about that idea of being born again, that you're born into a new family. And so it's not even that you just begin to adopt the practices of a new family. It's that your very heart and your affections, everything about you and who you are, begins to be formed anew in light of that same gospel. In other words, grace changes everything. Everything. And having laid out the case in the beginning of this book for the, for the pursuing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers, Peter has turned his attention now to the way that the gospel begins to work itself out in the life of God's people. And his point in this text this morning is really to say this, gospel declaration results in gospel culture. When you begin to pronounce the truth of God's Word, inevitably, inevitably it begins to create something new among God's people. Your gospel identity results in gospel behavior. And gospel identity for us is a, can be a tricky subject because we tend to think about it in a very narrow format. We tend to think about the way that it affects our Sunday morning, for instance, and the way that we begin our weekend, or maybe sitting down to pray before a meal, or those sorts of things. But But understand, the gospel is not just about your eternal destiny, your home in heaven. It's not just about the little things throughout the week that are explicitly explicitly sacred. It shapes everything about your life and practice. The Christian life is not first a thing that we do, but an entity that we are together. And Peter's going to build on that idea today in the text that we're looking at. Beginning in verse 4, here's what he says. As you, speaking here to believers, those who've been redeemed by Christ, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, or rather Peter says a lot throughout those first couple of verses here. He starts by using this term to refer to Jesus. He calls him the living stone. And that's important because one of the things that we understand about Peter is that this word living clearly is a very important piece of vocabulary for him. He he uses the word living to describe our hope in chapter 1, to describe the word, and ultimately here to describe the living stone. And why does this language matter so much to Peter? Why does he keep bringing this same word over and over again into the conversation with different applications each time? Well, it's important to him because it had a profound influence on his life and who he was. Do you remember who Peter was prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We find examples of this all throughout the New Testament, and typically Peter is kind of viewed with a little bit of ridicule by a lot of people for his life before the resurrection, though typically he acts how we might act in a similar circumstance, but he's this outspoken poser. He's got a good heart. He intends to do the right thing. He's pursuing the right things, but he does it in kind of this bold, borderline foolish way throughout his life. And at certain points in his life, it gets him into real trouble, but 
but nowhere is it exemplified more than in the moments when Jesus Christ is about to be crucified. If you remember, Jesus had had a conversation with Peter, and he said, Peter, I want you to know that there's an hour coming when you're going to betray me. And Peter says, Lord, if everybody else walks away from you, I will never, ever betray you. And he said that with absolute intentionality, with purposeful conviction. And yet, as Jesus is being scourged and undergoing the trial and all of those different things, we find this scene where where a servant girl, literally somebody in this, in this time period who had the least amount of power of influence that one could have, coming up to Peter and saying, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And three separate, separate occasions in that text, Peter denies Jesus. So then what changes for Peter? Because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything profoundly changes. He meets the living stone. This Jesus whom he knew and who he, who he understood to a point and who certainly was a friend and was his savior became something, something so much more real to him. A living stone to the point where in Acts chapter 5, as Peter begins to preach and proclaim the gospel message in the temple, he ultimately gets arrested and imprisoned for proclaiming that gospel. The same gospel that he was willing to deny in the presence of Jesus Christ, he's now willing to go to prison for. And if you read that text, an angel comes, releases he and his fellow evangelists from the prison. He goes right back into the temple and begins preaching again. He gets arrested a second time. He's standing in front of a tribunal, in front of the high priest. And here is his response to the high priest. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, witnesses to the living stone. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So what changed in Peter? Everything. He meets the living stone. He knows for himself in a very real and deep and profound way who this person of Jesus Christ actually is. He experiences the power of the resurrection in his life, the imputation of the Holy Spirit into his life, and suddenly everything is different. So understand this. When Peter uses this phraseology that Jesus is the living stone, he's saying our hope is not in some carved idol. Our hope is not in a church building. Our hope is not in some impotent being. It is in the God who raised Jesus from the dead that our life flows from the living stone. And Peter uses that title for Jesus now as a metaphor to begin to describe the sort of culture that's created by the gospel. He says in verse 6 that Jesus is the cornerstone. He begins to describe the building of a house. And if you were to build a house at this time, the cornerstone was the most important and the most expensive piece of building implement that you would purchase. It was the very first stone that was to be laid down. It was a large stone that had to be completely solid. No cracks, no crumbles, no no broken edges. It had to be expertly crafted to make sure that it was perfectly square because all of the lines of that house were going to extend from that cornerstone. And every other stone that was used in the building of that house was going to be tied into it. If the cornerstone was going to be flawed in any way, ultimately the house itself was going to reveal it. And the integrity of that building was going to be called into question. But according to Peter, in Jesus, we have a perfect cornerstone. 
In fact, Jesus uses the same language about himself in Matthew 21. You can read it on your own time. It's a fascinating account. But he says this. He says, I am the solid rock. He's saying, I have the integrity to hold up. I have the, the, the ability to give direction and purpose and clarity to your life. When everything else crumbles and everything else is storming in on you, I am the one thing that will not change. And Peter then begins to build on this metaphor by saying, to the extent that you have been drawn to Jesus, you likewise are a living stone. You are being tied into that structure, tied into the cornerstone himself. You are not some passive, inert vessel. You are made an active, contributing member of the household. And he's saying in, in all of this, there's an eternal connection to Jesus. It's what we said in that confession of the faith. I am and ever will be a member of this body. Peter's going to say something here that gets lost on us as Gentile believers some 2,000 years removed because, because notice then what he begins to say. He says that this house that's being built up is a spiritual one. That when we are collectively, together, drawn to Christ, he, like an expert craftsman, is choosing and placing and building us together as a spiritual house so that in being drawn to that living stone of Jesus Christ, you are being drawn into the very presence and power of God himself. You are being built up into a spiritual house and, he says, a holy priesthood. Now remember the context for all of this, which is primarily one that's been informed by a Jewish understanding. In the Old Testament, there's, there's a substantial amount of time spent um, explaining temple worship and how it all worked together. You'll remember that the worshipers of God were expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to go into the temple at least once a year. There was an expectation that they were going to go to this place where ultimately God himself in an earthly, uh, dwelled in an earthly presence. And you can just imagine, as best as we're able, the awe and the wonder that would have come over those early worshipers, those observant Jews, as they walked towards this massive structure where every detail had been intentionally and purposefully and creatively developed to draw your attention to the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God, that God himself had provided the blueprint for this building. And so if you were to approach that structure, you would you would in theory be able to walk first into the court of the Gentiles, this outer court that was designed just for the people who were followers of the one true God but were not of the nation of Israel. And were you a Jew, you could continue in your way into that temple, into the court of the women. That was as far as women, by the way, were allowed to go into the temple. And if you were a Jewish man, an observant Jewish man, and right standing, you could enter further into the, into the court of Israel. And ultimately, if you were to go further, it was the court of the priests. And then finally, at the very center of this, you would find the Holy of Holies, the earthly dwelling place of an almighty God. And of course, the only person who was actually able to enter into that Holy of Holies was the high priest himself once per year. And so sacred was that place that a rope was to be tied around that high priest's ankle as he entered in so that if he was overwhelmed by the holiness of God and struck dead in that moment, he could be pulled back out. And if you were a Gentile, you never even got close to that place. You never got into the court of women. 
If you were an observant Jewish woman, you never got close to the court of Israel. If you were a Jewish man, you never got close to the court of the priests. And unless you were the high priest, you never even considered the prospect of entering into the Holy of Holies. In other words, there were all of these lines of demarcation that kept the worshipers of God from interacting with Him personally. But when Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the dead, those lines were erased. Far from God's presence being contained in an inaccessible place, God Himself had stormed into the very hearts of His people. Peter's saying, we as those who know Jesus Christ, you and I, we are being built up into the spiritual house of God. We are now the temple collectively together. The church is the temple of God Himself. This place that was so sacred and so set off and so reserved that no observant Jew ever would have expected to even be able to enter into the Holy of Holies is now present with us. The Holy of Holies is no longer a place that we're unable to visit, but rather it is a place that has been visited upon us. And we, as those who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, have been made part of that highest, most elite, holiest priestly class. And because of God's invading love, we have been made alive and are being built together into Jesus and with one another. And the initial diagnostic question for us this morning is this, does that actually awaken your heart and stir your affections? When you think about this God who's so holy and so incredible and so loving and so passionate in this pursuit of his people, so sacred and so worthy of worship, but yet makes himself so accessible that he dwells in us and among us. Is your heart blown away by the reality of who that God is and how lowly he made himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could have unaltered access, so that we could become spiritual priests, every one of us, are you in awe of the wonder of that which you've been made part? Or is that access that we have to God so familiar and so commonplace and so passe that the utter privilege we've been given is lost on us? Because if you miss the beauty and the wonder of the truth that your life is tied in with Jesus Christ eternally, that he pursued and chose you and placed you, that he indwells you and interacts with you, if you miss that, you'll inevitably miss the outworking of that truth in your life. This profound relationship with Jesus, Jesus ushers us into a communal identity together. It's the meaning of that word Catholic in the confession that we said today. That's not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It's a reference to the fact of the Catholic Church, the universal body of Jesus Christ, all believers at all times, in all places that, that have been made one with Jesus Christ, being tied into the building of Jesus Christ, being set into the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And as we've stated in other sermons, it's important to recognize that when the New Testament speaks of the dwelling place of God, it most often references the church collectively. It doesn't just mean you, independent of other believers as a Lone Ranger Christian. 
It presumes a level of interaction with the body of Christ. Universally, of course, in a spiritual sense, but also locally. And we find that all all throughout the illustrations that the New Testament gives us. As one theologian stated, a brick in a field is not a building. A lone sheep is not a flock. And a severed hand is not a body. We need one another as we're being tied in together. And in being drawn into this relationship with Jesus Christ, you are inherently being drawn into relationship with other believers. And therefore, to neglect that association and that communion with others is to not function as God intended you to function. So notice then how this connection to the cornerstone begins to connect you to other people. And most of what we're going to talk about this morning is kind of on a high level, how does this connect you? But understand what he's saying here as, he reads in, as we read in verse 9. You can read along with me as I read aloud. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now, if you're paying attention and if you're observant and if you've been around for a few months, you know that we preached on this very text just a couple of months ago. How many of you, by the way, actually remembered that just to satisfy my own curiosity? All right, profound impact we're having. That's great. I'm glad you're back this morning at least. You can go back and listen to that. We talk about it at length, but I just want to kind of breeze through this this morning because I think it's so helpful for us to talk about because this language is striking. It is substantial for us because historically, each of these titles were titles that would have been reserved for the nation of Israel. They would not have applied to Gentile believers spread across the world 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus Christ. This language had been reserved for national Israel. They were God's people. And they had all kinds of privileges because of that. But now, understand this and bask in the wonder of this, these titles of royalty and bloodline and chosenness and holiness and destiny are applied to you and me. That as we talked about last week, if you have tasted, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, It is evidence that you've been born into this family, received into this tribe. You've been made a part of this bloodline. And notice what he says first. I'm going to take two of these ideas and tie them together just for the sake of time this morning. He says, first, you are a chosen race and a holy nation. The identity that once belonged to national Israel has been applied to all those who trusted Christ. That God has created out of diverse peoples of every tongue and tribe and nation a brand new nation. And that phrase that he uses, that you are a new nation, is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity. He's saying, I'm giving you a new ethnic identity as a people of God in this present world. You've been identified with a new group. And if we think about it in those ethnic terms, he's saying ultimately what ties together a people ethnically or what ties together a people racially? A common ancestry, a common bloodline, a common culture, and all of this now is being applied to this new ethnicity, this new nation that God is creating out of these diverse people groups. In other words, Peter is saying there is something infinitely more significant than the blood that runs through your veins. And that is the precious blood by which you are made into a new people. A whole new 
bloodline. A whole new nation. And tomorrow, we're going to celebrate, or actually recognize, is a better word, Memorial Day. It's this day when we remember all of those who, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, who gave their life for the sake of our nation, for the sake of our freedom, for you and for me. And it's a moving and very appropriate tribute to remember those who gave their life for our great country. It's an important piece of who we are as a people. It's not something that we ought to take lightly, but understand what Peter is saying here. He's saying, listen, we also have a citizenship that is set in heaven. It is our primary citizenship. It is the new nation of which we are a part. It reminds us that as much as we are appreciative for the many blessings we've received, we are still strangers and pilgrims in this world. That we serve as ambassadors for the King of Kings. A new nation, a new people. And then he says this, a people for his own possession. He's saying you were bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourselves. You no longer belong to the reign of sin. You no longer belong to this world. You have been purchased. You've been given freedom and redemption. You no longer are alone and destined for a life without God. And finally, as we mentioned earlier, he says, you are a royal priesthood. Now, those two words are important because they communicate very different ideas. In Israel, and, and in fact, in most times and places throughout the world's history, the idea of religion and and kingship have at least some level of separation. Certainly in national Israel, that was the case. You had the king and you had the priestly class, and there was a very distinct divide between the governmental leadership and the religious leadership of the nation. But here he says, you are a royal priesthood. Well, how can that be? It can only be that way when the king and the high priest are the very same person. And in Jesus Christ, it's exactly who we have but the ruler of our lives and the redeemer of our lives are the very same person. And as such, we have been made into a royal priesthood that this rarefied role, this priestly class that had been limited to a select group of special people from the right tribe has now been abolished. And that if you know Jesus Christ, you have been made a priest. And understand what that means in a very practical sense. That your role as a priest, the theological term is the priesthood of all believers, means that there is not a distinction in class in the eyes of God between pastors, elders, and people who are not pastors and elders. And likewise, the responsibilities belonging to a priest belong to you. You'll remember in the moment when Jesus breathes his last on the cross that in that very moment the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the temple was torn from top to bottom, that access to God was granted, freely given to all who believe. And remember, by the way, what's happening in this very text. Peter is speaking to people from all kinds of backgrounds and all occupations and all levels of education and all levels of biblical understanding. He's talking here to service workers and medical professionals and physical laborers and stay-at-home moms and students and retirees. He's reminding you that regardless of your station in life and regardless of your background and regardless of your knowledge level, you have a gospel-given, gospel-driven identity. And think for just a moment about what that actually means in your own life. 
that as elect citizens, as blood-born sons and daughters of the King, as priests with direct access to the throne room of God, you have a privilege and a responsibility that surpasses whatever station you feel you have achieved or not achieved in this life. And in making this declaration, Peter is deconstructing this artificial wall that we are tempted to put up between the sacred and the secular. We have a tendency to divide our lives into distinct, clean, neat pieces. I have my spiritual life, I have my Christian life, I have my Sunday morning life, and then I have my my real life, my rest of my life, however you want to determine it. This very real division and divorce that we've created in our lives between who God has actually made us to be. And it expresses itself in all kinds of ways in our culture. It's the reason why, historically, people are told in polite company you don't talk about politics and religion. Why? Because we want to keep those things separate. It gets so messy when everything's together and somebody might get offended and we don't want to, we don't want to be those people. But what Peter is saying is to be a Christian is to be a priest. You are to be an intercessor, a go-between, a bridge builder. To be one who proclaims the goodness of God, who intercedes for the needs of other people, who cares for wounded souls. And so when Peter says here that we offer spiritual sacrifices, he's not just talking about singing songs or praying prayers on a Sunday morning, though certainly that's a part of what being a priest looks like. But much more broadly than that, and much more practically, if we're honest in a lot of circumstances, it means that the whole of your life is to be offered as a sweet-smelling savor to God. So when you go to work, you are offering up a spiritual act of worship. In the way that you do your job, in the way that you interact with your coworkers, in the way that you use your time, And when you watch your grandkids, it's not just babysitting. It is a spiritual act of worship. When you go about your daily life, when you interact with your neighbors, when you talk to your classmates, all of these things are merely the practical expressions of what it means to be a priest in this world. So that, verse 9, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now notice then what awaits this people whom God is calling together, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, that is Jesus Christ, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, as if it's not enough that we've been given all of these titles and all these privileges and all these responsibilities and and all of this kinship with other believers and being tied into the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, as if all of that wasn't enough, what he's saying is there is a very particular honor that is awaiting those who have placed their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, that God himself honors you. In other words, and think again practically about these people, whatever dishonor we face in this life, for believing in Jesus as the cornerstone, for proclaiming the truth of the word, God will not put us to shame. 
the person, rather the being, whose opinion ought matter most to us in the world has promised us that if our faith is in Jesus Christ, we will not be put to shame. It's the promise for those who place their trust in Jesus that they will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And as I think about how these words must have struck the ears of these suffering Christians, I think of the words of that old hymn, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. So if that honor is awaiting us, what then keeps us from entering into it? And he's going to answer that in the rest of verse 7 into verse 8. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you do not believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, those words are hard to hear, and you can read Romans chapter 9 if you want to hear a broader extrapolation of what he means at the end of that verse. But understand what he's saying right at the core of it. He says this, if you do not recognize Jesus as the cornerstone of your life, if you do not experience redemption through his work, if you do not place your hope in him, then he can be nothing to you other than a stumbling block and an offense. And immediately some respond, well, I don't know if that's true. I read the words of Jesus. I see the lifestyle of Jesus. I find all sorts of good things to emulate. I love his generosity. I love his kindness. I love his inclusion. I love his loving attitude. I just don't believe in him as my Savior, but I don't find him to be an offense. What Peter is saying is then perhaps you have merely been obsessed with an idealized version of Jesus that aligns with your own worldview. Jesus either will be everything to you, or he will be offensive. And if he's something in between or something different, then you have not yet encountered the Jesus of the Bible. And I realize that sounds strong. But take, for instance, the most famous verse, at least within our modern context, in Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we hear those words and immediately the question comes to mind, well, who could hate that? Even if you're an atheist, even if you don't believe this, even if you reject the reality of it, inherently there's nothing offensive about the idea that God himself loved us and sent Jesus for us to to bring us to himself. I mean, most people can get on board with a God like that, but continue reading in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, now that's offensive. Now you've gone too far. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that same idea is repeated in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, which says this, What shall we say then, Paul says to, Paul says to his audience, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? A righteousness that is by faith? 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's that quote from the Old Testament once again in Romans chapter 9, and here's what he's saying. In other words, there are all kinds of people, in this case specifically Paul is referencing Jews, who found Jesus to be a stumbling block because his sacrifice inherently meant that he was the only way to God, and we hate that. And then of our own flesh, we hate that idea. You're telling me I'm not good enough? You're telling me I can't work hard enough? You're telling me I can't do enough good works to earn my place in the eyes of God? And Paul and Peter and the whole of Scripture says, yes. Only through Christ and through Christ alone. So now here's the practical questions. What do we do now that we know these things? Because for some, the reason that you've struggled to identify with the people of God as a spiritual house is that you've never identified with Christ as the living stone. You've tried to put the cart before the horse. I want to identify with the people. I want to be part of a church. I want to have religious observance, but I don't feel connected. I don't feel relationships. I don't feel depth. And the very first question for you is, do you actually know the living stone? Have you been tied in with him? Have you received life through him? Have you come to know him? Because without being tied into that living stone, that cornerstone, you'll never know the sense of identity and the place that God intends for you. And for you, the invitation is clear. Oh, that today would be the day where you stop tripping over Jesus. Where you stop seeing him as a stumbling block and where you find him to be the most precious cornerstone you could imagine where you would see his sacrificial love for you and find him to be so worthy of your love in return that you would follow the instruction of this text and believe and trust in him. For others, you may not be able to grasp the significance of this sort of identity and community because you've been trying to live as that Lone Ranger Christian. I don't like organized religion. I don't like rules. I don't think I should have to worship God in a particular place at 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 a particular time. For you... Part of the reason you may be experiencing this disconnect is that you just haven't been, been around to know people. Maybe you're here and you listen to the sermon in this room and you leave, or maybe you listen via the podcast, but nobody that you can point to here actually knows you. And listen, listening to sermons and hearing preaching and listening to podcasts, all that stuff is great and it can be beneficial, but it no more connects you to the church than watching a basketball game makes you a member of the team. Do not be willing to exchange your role in the local body of the church for teaching alone. So find a place to belong. As you come to the living stone, recognize that he's calling you into the body of the church. And yet for others, their lack of connection with the local church is just born of fear. Churches are broken places full of broken people who do dumb things. We sin, we hurt people, sometimes intentionally, many times on accident. And maybe that fear of being hurt is what's keeping you at bay. 
If nobody knows me and if I don't trust anybody with anything, I can't be hurt by them. Well, that's true. You also can't receive the infinite blessing that comes from being known in this sort of way. And God is calling you into that for your joy, for your benefit, for his glory, and for a lost and dying world that desperately needs to know him. So understand this, the church is a hospital for the broken. It is a place of healing for the hurting. It's a place of belonging for the outcast. It's a place of hope for the hopeless. And by God's grace, we as Disciples Church are striving together to be the sort of church that is not surprised by the extent of brokenness in people's lives but never stops being surprised at the reach of God's grace. So the question for you today is this, are you trusting Jesus to do these things, to be this thing for you, or are you stumbling over him? The honor is for those who believe, and that's the invitation to you today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for a text that is so packed with meaning that we could spend weeks dissecting it. And yet, God, for a text that is so simple in its invitation to find life and meaning in you that the most simple child among us can understand it. God, would we be simple children in our faith? Would we come to you without pretense? Would we come to you without, ex- without exception, not holding anything back, but inviting you to reveal to us where we're weak and to find our strength in you, to find life in the only place that it can be found, which is in and through Jesus Christ, so that you can be glorified through a life of worship made acceptable because of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We pray that you would continue to be gracious in your interaction with us and in our interactions with each other. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.